On this episode of Shoulder of Orion, I'm honored to sit and speak with award-winning director Charles de la Zarica. Charles is the man behind Blade Runner, The Final Cut. Having convinced Ridley Scott in the studio to go back to the film and perfect some of the minor yet important detail, Charles painstakingly put each piece together scene by scene over the course of a few years. And then there's Dangerous Days, the three and a half hour plus making of Blade Runner documentary that feature all of the major players discussing, reminiscing with joy, their memories of night shoots and rain in the early 1980s. Speaking with Charles has always been a goal of mine and I am pleased to present this interview. I first have to say Blade Runner is my favorite film of all time and I have a very deep uh, love for it. And um, so the entire time I was working on these other DVD projects for Ridley in the back of my mind was, you know, we've got to get to Blade Runner at some point. And that's the one, you know, like that's the, the holy grail of all of these. And um, so I think it was in 1999 or 2000, um, we had our first discussion with Warner Brothers about doing a Blade Runner special edition. And that was because um, the Matrix disc had come out mm-hmm. and done really well. And they wanted to try to recapture that sort of cyberpunk um, and then DVD interactive experience somehow. So, you know, we started talking about it and then it became apparent, like, you know, the film has quite a history, um, not just in terms of the, uh, the making of, uh, journey, but also the various cuts and which cut do we present and, or do we, do we present multiple cuts? And like these were all questions early on, which I think, you know, you, you go in and you, and, and you get into a meeting with, with studio people and they think, Oh, it's Blade Runner. Great. People like that movie. Let's do something with it. And then you, get under the hood and you explain to them, well, yeah, it's not just the, I mean, here are the reasons why people love it. Cause there's a, there's a mystique. There's a, there's a, a storied, um, past to this, that there's a history to it that we need to uh, at least address, or we have to have that conversation. So, you know, it wasn't quite as easy, um, as I, I think a lot of people had hoped in terms of what we were going to do with this thing. And, but to their credit, I mean, Warner brothers set us up, um, the next year, I think it was. And we started looking through elements and materials and we were trying to find a way to give Ridley his true preferred cut of the film because the 1992 director's cut, he wasn't directly involved with and it was kind of rushed. So, um, you know, we wanted to have a definitive cut and, um, and also some really great behind the scenes, um, content. And, you know, it, it began with only doing the definitive cut, which is what we called it back then, the definitive cut. And then, um, we were going to include, um, on the edge of blade runner, um, the um, Andrew Abbott, Mark Kermode doc that's really great, and uh, at the time was really the only serious documentary about Blade Runner, and um, and that was going to be kind of it. Maybe do a commentary, maybe do some galleries or something, but it's going to be you know a pretty simple special edition. And I, it's not that I had in my mind to eventually end up with a five disc mega set, but that's just that was the process of like we we began with that first idea, that definitive set, and then over the course of years of discovery and then setbacks and you know we had a couple legal issues where we weren't even supposed to be restoring the film because the the deal wasn't in place yet um you know it just went on and on and on and uh finally i think it was you know we i think we were originally hoping for a uh, a 2002 uh release for the 20th anniversary blade runner but then we blew past that and then um because of the legal you know hang-ups um you know in a way looking back on it now it was actually i think a benefit that we were slowed down because it allowed us more time to to dig deeper to dig up more stuff to um 
really uh, approach this as a, as a thorough, comprehensive exploration of the film and its history. And on top of that, because we eventually got into the idea of uh, sort of digitally fixing the flaws, the very obvious flaws in Blade Runner, the ones that take you out of the moment, um, such as Zora's death or Batty's dove, things like that. Um, the technology advanced so much in just those five or six years of waiting that um, it was actually we actually could pull off a you know replacing uh, um, Lee Pulford. The um, is that her name? Lee. I, I think she's she was the stunt person. Mm-hmm. Uh, for uh, Joanna Cassidy and um, that we could actually get Joanna Cassidy to come back for a day and, and shoot her head in front of a green screen and, you know, fix that. And so that became a, that became a benefit of the wait. So I, I don't look back on it with anything but love and appreciation. I, I think it was just such a fantastic journey to be on. And the fact that Warner brothers was so great and supportive and um, you know, and Ridley was finally able to do the cut that he wanted and, um, it's funny, it's come up a lot today, as a matter of fact, people talking about the final cut and um, that they love it, except they wish that, you know, Batty's original, I want more life fucker line was in it instead of father. And I always have to remind people, well, I, I, I agree with you. And I do think it's a better line. But the original version was always father in the work print and the work print predates the theatrical cut. So I always use that technicality on people and they don't seem to buy it, but I, um, you know, it is funny that people still are arguing about Blade Runner, um, today, today, especially, I guess, because the new movie's coming out. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, it was just basically this, this long journey of going through boxes and looking up footage and figuring out how it all fits together and what Ridley's final wishes were for the film. And, um, and then on top of that, in addition to the massive restoration work, it was the uh, the behind the scenes content for the the disc, and mm-hmm. that became Dangerous Days, and it became all the other featurettes, and it became the deleted and extended scenes. And um, seriously, it was like it was like a year and a half, two years of nonstop just Blade Runner bliss of just like going through boxes and digging up amazing stuff that I hadn't seen the light of day in decades, you know. Dangerous Days is even though I had seen, you know, your work with Alien and Dangerous Days again was another defining documentary about, uh, you know, this storied this film that I had loved. It's one of my all time favorite films, um, and uh, it, w- it was really an accomplishment. And in fact, I remember when the DVD was being marketed and. Um, Somebody asked, no, I think it was almost, Edward James almost asked, did you get Harrison? And there was a cut. Um, and then, or maybe there was a cut, that's my memories. And then there's the cut to Harrison eventually, and he goes, it was a bitch. Um, and it was really, it was a real powerful documentary. And just, I mean, the film itself obviously is very powerful. It's very emotional. It's very you know, watching it, you know, seeing it again last night on the big screen, which was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen. I think I was seven when, or six when the original came out. Um, it was, it, it, I, it, I felt like seeing it for the first time. It's so, such an emotional journey that really Dangerous Days echoed that. It was a very emotional um, documentary that really echoed the film in so many ways. And um, I... I my favorite things about films are behind the scenes documentaries. It's, it's always has been that way. I mean, certainly I love the films, but 
that's why I buy the DVD. It's not because, I mean, I, I do want to see the film again. Um, but, and I'm not saying this to placate you or, or to, uh, you know, brown nose. These documentaries are, def to me, they define how documentaries should be made for films. Um, there is, uh, so for whatever that's worth, I thought it was uh, incredible. And the interviews with uh, Sean Young and her, kind of eccentric personality in her own. Uh, it was it was something I haven't seen, you know, uh, something I don't experience. And I watch a lot of these documentaries on a lot of films. And maybe it's because I'm biased because these happen to be my favorite films. However, I remember when uh, The Matrix came out and I bought it. It was probably the second DVD I'd ever bought in my life. The first one was The Dark Crystal. Um, and I was like, whoa, this, this is amazing. All this behind the scenes. And then the next documentary that I saw was Dangerous Days. Um, it was before any of the alien stuff. Um, so it, it's just a testament to your love uh, of the film and to everyone involved in making the film. So I just want to say great job on that. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And certainly um, it was the, the biggest uh, labor of love of all of them that I've done. And, uh, you know, it was it was unfortunately not 100% finished when I had to deliver. So I, I keep hoping that one day in the future I'll be able to, you know, do my final cut of dangerous days, but, um, it's, um, it's, um, it was definitely one of the, certainly the, the highlights of this weird DVD career that I've been in. But, um, I, um, I, I it was, it was just, it was nothing but, it was just nothing but pleasure and love and fun, um, in terms of the, the, uh, interviews and the digging up of the material and just the, the creative on it was, was wonderful. And I've never, had exactly that same kind of just joy that I, that I had on Blade Runner. It was a really difficult, tough project, no doubt about it. And a lot of people really busted their asses on it. And, and I, and I don't want to make it sound like it was nothing but, you know, rainbows and picnics, but it was just, uh, it was, um, at the end of the day, I look back and I'm like, man, we really got to do some good work on that one. And, uh, and I'm glad people appreciate it because not, not everybody wants to sit down and watch a three and a half hour mm -hmm. documentary about anything you know, let alone, um, this kind of semi-failed <laughs> sci-fi cult classic that, you know, a certain people, a certain amount of people love fiercely and the rest of the world, you know, thinks, Oh, that's that old film with the neon and the rain. And we've seen that a million times since. And, you know, like even today I get, you know, I, there's that still that same sensibility of people that are like, um, you know, they're not fans of the original film because it's kind of slow and it's kind of melancholy and bluesy and rain and dark, which is exactly why I love the film, mm -hmm. I love the film for its mood, and its atmosphere. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I'll always look back at that one as, as one of the great periods of my life um, because I, I got, because the creativity was so much fun and I felt like it was in the service of something special. You know, it wasn't just yet another package we had to throw together for a certain date and a certain delivery. It was, um, it, it felt like a, a cause in, a, in its own, you know, kind of unimportant movie kind of way, but it just felt like we were doing something special. And I, and I still enjoy that. Seven. Go to hell or go to heaven. That's the spirit. Was it difficult for you to track down, say, Harrison Ford or Sean Young for this documentary? Well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned those two because, um, as I mentioned um, before, regarding Alien, Alan Ladd Jr. was our first interview on Blade Runner. But our second interview out of the 80 we did was Harrison. And like that was 
it blew my mind that he said yes, and he said yes so early. It wasn't like he waited to see who else we got. He um, he said yes right away. And and in a way, I wish I'd interviewed him later because some of the stories that eventually developed over all the interviews, I could have you know gone back to him on. But um, but he was great, and he was so uh, pro and 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 pleasant to work with. And and just so you know, we shot his interview and Rutger Howard's interview on the same day. In fact, we were trying to time it. So that as Harrison was wrapping up, Rutger would be showing up, and we were going to we were going to capture that on camera. But unfortunately, um, the, it ended up being like an hour difference between the two of them. So, um, but that was a really amazing day to shoot both Harrison Ford and Rutger Hauer on, on on the same day. Both we shot both of those in Ridley's office at the old uh, at the Scott Free Building. So, um, and then Sean was the last interview. She was the very last interview we shot. And I'm not sure why it took so long. I think that she was concerned um, about, I don't know, if we were even legit or if this was going to be a real project or who else was being interviewed. Or I don't, I don't remember what it was. And, and Sean's great. I mean, I've had many like social conversations with her after that. And, and I think she's, you know, wonderful. And she's definitely as, uh, <laughs> as much of a handful as, as, you know, she's known for. But I think that's part of why she's so fun and charming and such a character to be around. I mean, she's like alive with a capital A and I, that's amazing. So, um, but she was the last interview and, and in a way that was kind of great too, because I thought, okay, now we've got the, 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 you know, with the exception of Brian James, who's no longer with us and William Sanderson, who for reasons I'm still not hundred percent sure of, um, couldn't be a part of it. Um, we got the, the cast, you know, we got the primary cast and then we, we, it was probably good that we got her because I would have kept going and, you know, they would have taken it away from me because I would have kept shooting other people just as, as a way to delay mm-hmm. until we got Sean. So, um, the fact that we got Sean was like a nice button to the whole thing. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Was there any surprise that you discovered being as immersed in Blade Runner and seeing footage Probably, obviously, seeing footage that I've never seen and probably will never see footage that never made the light of day. Was there was there anything that surprised you during your research? Yeah, it was it was always fun um, going through um, the deleted scenes and the dailies, and um, just seeing alternate versions of things that I thought I knew everything about, um, or complete surprises that were they were minor. They weren't like major surprises, but just little touches of things that, um, for instance, like in the scene when um deckard and gaff go to leon's apartment and they're kind of just you know poking around looking for clues um i always knew that the original plan was that um leon was going to be hiding somewhere um and you know he might spring out or or something but he was always like hiding in, in the rafters or behind this bed or whatever i always knew that that leon would um was meant to be hiding somewhere in the uh in that hotel room, but I didn't realize they actually shot any of that. I thought that they had just abandoned that idea. So I'm watching the raw uncut dailies, you know, the camera dailies and, um, gaff, you know, leaves his little stick man, his little origami. And, um, and, and he follows Deckard out of the room and then the camera holds for a few seconds. And then Leon steps out, Brian James steps out of the bathroom. So he, he was there all along and I didn't realize they'd actually, followed through on that idea so that when um i put together the deleted and extended scenes i um had us basically we inserted the sound effect of like the foley basically of someone 
jumping down off of something high up. So it created the impression that Leon was in the ceiling in the bathroom the whole time. And, um, and so that's how we kind of made that scene worthwhile and as a deleted scene, because otherwise it was just variations of just, you know, poking around the room. But the reveal of Leon, I thought was kind of a surprise. Cause I was, I remember watching the footage that, that morning I was, I just gasped like, Oh my God, I didn't realize they actually did that. So mm. again, not nothing that like changes my perception of the movie or any of the story points or whatever. It's just, um, it's just nice little surprises like that where you think, Oh, the fans are going to love this, you know? And, um, and there was tons of that with, just going through, I think I went through, it was, it was like 997 boxes of, of film. And it took about, I think it took about six weeks to just to power through it all. And, um, and I wanted to see everything. I mean, a lot of times, you know, you just don't have the luxury of looking through everything. So you have to rely on your editors and you have to kind of look at logs and you have to like, just target what you think you want with Blade Runner, because there was no log of any of that material. Um, I, I went through it. And I wanted to make the log myself. So I knew, you know, and, and just being a fan, I could like make a note, like this is important. Like let's, you know, transfer this, you know? Um, so that was, again, when, when we were talking earlier about just the, the joy of working on this, that was the most intoxicating part was going through the original dailies on the film and seeing everything that was shot or everything that still survives. And then putting together those deleted scenes for the, for the disc was, was it was it was pretty mind blowing because you know a lot of it we had no roadmap for we didn't really have a cut none of this stuff had ever been cut together before where there, there was maybe like three or four scenes that had been cut and we used those cuts as they existed but um a lot of it was just raw so working with my editors we cut together like what was kind of our own little fan edit of all of these deleted scenes and that resulted in this 47 minute alternate version of the movie which also served a great purpose, which was we had all of the, these audio recordings of Deckard's mm-hmm. early, early voiceover, not the, not the one that's actually in the theatrical or the international cut, but the first pass that Harrison Ford did that no one seemed to like. And it's very strange and very different. And a little, little bit of it appears in the work print. But we had all of these sessions of Harrison Ford narration that was just bizarre. And so basically having all of this extra raw footage gave a place for that audio to live and created like this really weird alternate dimension version of Blade Runner. So that to me was probably like, you know, it, it was like my favorite part of all the extras was the, the deleted and extended scenes because it, it provided so much new material, alternate material and a completely different experience. Gaff picked me up in the morning and gave me the files on the escapees. Useless stuff, but scary. I had a headache by the time I got to page two. Ryan had pinpointed 1292, one called Batty, as the leader of the escape. He was a three and a half year old combat model. Military test had thrown him into every off world battle from the fighting at Tannhauser Gates to the massacre on the Venezuelan moons. Whose uh, idea was it? It might have been Ridley Scott's, but in terms of re. They, you know, they brought. Um, Joanna Cassidy back to shoot those scenes. How did that start? Like, Hey, we should go back and redo this and then re-release it. Um, how'd that begin? Well, um, you know, I, I think Ridley was always fine with the cut, uh, the way it was in terms of the, the flaws that I think a lot of fans, you know, obsess over whether it's Zora's death or Batty's dove or, you know, other little continuity issues that, you know, hopefully if you're immersed in the film, you won't notice or won't take you out. But I, I, 
I, I do think the Zora scene is in particular um, a big one because it's shot with a long lens. It's shot in slow motion. It's, it's, it's with all of like this really just beautiful, emotional music with, with Blade Runner blues playing. And it's just, it's such a moment that you scrutinize because it's hanging on the screen for so long. Therefore you cannot get away with a stunt double and a bad wig. You like that. That is like, that's, it just is not working. You know, mm. I remember seeing it opening day, um, as a teenager at the man Hollywood. And there was like laughter when, when Lee Pulford showed up in the stunt, the, the stunt double, like with the, with the, with the wig and everything, because it was just so obviously not Joanna Cassidy. And on top of that, it was the, it was the wig, you know, it was like, if, if they, if they had managed to get the hair right, it might've gotten by, but because that wig was so stiff and so big and just so not what we were seeing it intercut with, it ruined the moment. And that was a really poetic, emotionally powerful moment that I felt, um, was, was, you know, damaged a bit by, by the rush of the shoot and, and not having it done right. So, you know, for quite a while, Ridley was not like, he, I mean, he was fine with us exploring, fixing it, but he was, you know, he was fine with us not doing it either. He was like, he was fine either way. But then once we started doing it and, and Joanna actually, she was the biggest proponent of doing it. Like when I interviewed her and, and if you watch on, on disc five of the original set, um, there's a feature called all our variant futures, um, produced by Paul Pritchman, who was my associate producer, um, and is no longer with us. Um, that was, um, you know, a really, I think, great look at the work we put into the final cut, because we actually showed the footage of my interview with Joanna Cassidy, where she says we should reshoot it, you know? So that, that, that moment of that is captured. And, uh, so, you know, after months and months of just talking about the fixes, you know, I, I we had a serious conversation myself and, and Kurt Galveo at Warner brothers. And, um, we talked about how to fix it and we talked to various visual effects houses and they, they kind of presented their ideas. And, um, so eventually, um, Sony and, uh, Sony image works and new deal studios. And they, it was kind of a combination of the teams that we, we went down, we shot Joanna in front of a green screen. Um, just basically it was like from the waist up and, and she brought, by the way, she brought in her original costume, the, the, the Zora kind of the bra, and the, uh, you know, like what she was wearing on the set. So she wore the real thing and, uh, and they did her hair right. And they put the snake tattoo, you know, on her jaw. And, uh, so it was, it was matched pretty perfectly. And Joanna, you know, 25 years later, still looking fantastic. So she fit right in and, um, man, that was amazing. Like it was the entire time, you know, I kept telling everybody, I said, look, we're going to try this and hopefully it works, but if it looks worse or if it doesn't look convincing, then we're going to drop it. You know, if, even if it costs some money and I'm sure no one wanted to hear that. So I, I feel like everyone really did their best to, to make it work. And man, did they, they did such a fantastic job. And, um, and I think then Ridley was like, Oh yeah, we should definitely should put this in. So it was, you know, it was, again, it was sort of a, an evolution and, and a learning curve and, and everything else. It was kind of just, let's just take a leap of faith and try to make this work. And then that I think emboldened, more fixes like for instance the um when deckard visits abdul ben hassan in the snake shop and deckard's you know lips were always out of sync with the dialogue i mean it was it was always kind of again laughable if you're paying attention and um but again it's one of those things like well if you don't fix it you can always explain it's sort of like a audio filter in the snake shop's you know glass or something you know you could come up with some bullshit reason why it's out of sync but 
we, when we, we thought, okay, well, we just replaced um, Joanna's head for Zora. Is there any way we can replace Deckard's mouth? And we thought, well, there's no way Harrison Ford is going to do it. But um, I, I said, you know, I, I heard he, he has some sons, right? Maybe we can get one of his sons to do it. And then um, I think his name is David Sanger uh, from New, New Deal Studios. He was there in the meeting and he said, well, I know Ben Ford. I went to school with him. He's a friend of mine. And he runs this restaurant right down the street called Ford's Filling Station. And this is in Culver City. And and so we literally like that day walked down to Ford's Filling Station and asked to see Ben. And he wasn't there, but we left a note for him. And then sure enough, he agreed to do it. And um, and what was really great was at the time that we shot that, Ben was the same age that Harrison was when, when he made Blade Runner. And and when you, again, if you watch that featurette I mentioned, when you see the, the lineup between Harrison's mouth and Ben's mouth in the in the screen, in the, in the video monitor, it's like, it's perfect. It's absolutely a perfect fit. So that's how we fix that one, you know? And it, it just became a process of like, what, what can we fix that takes people out of the movie? Or what can we fix that's a, a distraction? You know, like Batty's Dove, you know, Batty's Dove takes off, it goes against a, a clear blue sky and like this aluminum paneled building and it doesn't looks nothing like Blade Runner because that's what they had to shoot with back then. So it was shot late in post-production. So we said, well, okay, let's fix that and make it look more Blade runner -y. So it was just, you know, it was just a series of, of those things where we just kept going scene by scene, shot by shot, and asking ourselves, okay, is this worth fixing? Does this improve or at least remove the distraction of a, of a flaw or continuity error? And, uh, and is it, you know, worth it in the, in the big picture? And, you know, that is kind of where the final cut began and ended was just with these hopefully tasteful fixes and polishes. Uh, you know, and they, they are flawless. I, I, I probably, I'm in the minority having seen the original theatrical release and then the, the first director's cut and then, of course, the final cut. I never noticed Zora's wig. Um, that scene for me, I, I, it's such an emotional journey for me. Every time I see that scene, I think about this woman running for her life just because she wants to live. She doesn't really want trouble. She just wants to live. And, you know, her, when she goes through glass, I just never, it was never something that I processed until I saw the final cut and then Dangerous Days. I'm like, oh yeah, it does look different. It does look weird. Um, but I was so immersed in the film that I didn't even, like the dove with with Roy, I, I don't even know what you're talking I mean, I know what you're talking about, but it never bothered me um, because the film was so well made um, and so well acted and the narrative was so beautiful. Um but uh, yeah, and again, seeing the final cut last night on the big screen, it's flawless, flawless. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ever know. But correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the scenes that you reshot with Joanna Cassidy, wasn't Ridley Scott on set for that? Uh, no, he was not. Oh, I don't know why I feel like I've seen footage of that. Okay, whatever. And it was just a green screen, there was no glass, there was nothing recreated? No, it was her sitting in a chair. Uh, in front of a green screen. And, and again, if you watched all our variant futures on disc five, you, you see, we have footage of the day. You can see the behind the scenes of the, the Zora shoot and everything else. Interesting. It's been a while since I've seen that. Um, but it was just my memory. I'm like, I feel like Ridley Scott was on set for that. Oh, okay. Uh, interesting. Here's kind of a final question as we kind of pivot away from dangerous days. Uh, and I know as someone who views Blade Runner as precious not because you love it, but because now you have a vest. I mean, you the version everyone's seeing now is the version that involves you. Um, so you're kind of a, a, a maker in some ways. How do you feel about uh, the sequel coming out? Um, 
I, I have very uh, complicated feelings about the sequel. So uh, I, I'm going to let it kind of rest for a bit and um, just sort of, you know, maybe revisit the idea of, of the sequel somewhere down the line uh, right now. I think it's, I think maybe it's not the best uh, time for me to talk about it. Um, um, I'm glad that people seem so excited about the world of Blade Runner. And I'm glad that uh, all of this attention is getting people to look at the original um, again um, with fresh eyes. And, um, you know, one day I might tell the whole story, um, <laughs> but right now I'm feeling like I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be, you know, kind of focus on the positive and let, um, let other people enjoy it. And, um, you know, and hopefully they do. And it seems like they are, it seems like the word is very positive and, um, and that's awesome. I think the evil new is, is an amazing director. Um, I've loved all of his films that I've seen and, um, and Roger Deakin is, is a master and I, you know, it's like, it's, it's such a, a team, um, behind the new film. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that they seem to be delivering, um, what, what they set out to do and what the fans seem to be responding to. And, um, yeah, it's like, I, I, I think I'm just, I'm too, um, close to the material to, uh, be objective. I completely understand. Uh, okay. So, uh, unrelated and unrelated to many, any, to, to any Ridley Scott films. And maybe if they are, that's fine. What, what, uh, films, uh, or art inspires you as a person? Um, I'm really into, uh, I mean, lately I've been, I've been doing a lot of photography and, uh, so I've been very much into exploring a lot of different types of, um, like photographers, but also, um, I love to travel and I love to see other cultures and I love to experience the world. So I'm, I feel like I'm just sort of recording things as, you know, as a documentarian, I suppose would do. And I, I but I just feel like, you know, I, I just try to, I, I'm just trying to like discover new things for myself and, um, and I'm keeping myself open. Like this is a, re a really strange aside, but when I was in Budapest, um, for the Martian, um, it was really cold and it was like the middle of, you know, it was like winter or whatever. And I was, you know, I didn't really want to want to like venture too far from my hotel because it was so cold. And then the next day you have an early morning, but there was like this, this, um, uh, restaurant near my hotel that, was really good, but also played like live jazz. And until then I was never really into jazz, even though Blade Runner almost has a little bit of a jazz influence throughout its score. I, I just wasn't really into jazz. And, and just hearing it live in this little, you know, this weird little restaurant in Budapest and like the, some back alley in Budapest, it kind of got me into jazz. So it's, it's sort of like this weird, like I, 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 I allow the world around me to sort of influence what it is that, that I'm currently interested in. And, um, and I don't really, cling to anything too strongly except for strangely blade runner like blade runner to me is like this it's this crossroads of so many different like disciplines and art and you know picture sound music fashion auto design i mean it's just like so many world building elements in blade runner that i love and I, and I look for those things in the real world not that reflect blade runner but that reflect something new and hopefully something different to to be uh you know explored when i interviewed um you know, on, on dangerous days, I interviewed other directors like Mark Romanek and Guillermo del Toro and Frank Darabont and Joseph Kahn. And I interviewed these guys asking them, you know, what, what was it about Blade Runner that inspired them? And, uh, and it was just interesting to get all the different reactions, but I asked Mark Romanek, I said, so we've seen the white, clean, pristine future of 2001 and, you know, all the kind of the, the variations of that. And then we've seen the dark, 
dirty dystopian future Blade Runner and then all the variations of that. And I asked him, is there another future? Is, are there, or is that it? Is that like the, the alpha and the omega of futures? And he said, well, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> that got me thinking, well, yeah, so let's get out there and try to find new futures because I think we've seen plenty of, of the previous types of futures and variations of them. And, you know, I mean, like when I saw the, the 2049 trailer the first time or one of it was the second trailer, and there was that holographic ballerina, um, you know, projected through the streets. And I immediately thought of Ghost in the Shell, which came, which came out just a few months earlier, you know. And and then I then I think back, well, wait a second. I think I saw holograms in the streets in the 1995 Judge Dredd. So it's sort of like, it, you know, we just see these variations of the same thing. And then I think to myself, well, what, was, what were movies like before Blade Runner in terms of presenting the future? And I don't think, aside from, say, heavy metal, uh, you know, the animated movie, which is based on the, on the great, you know, graphic magazine. Um, there's never really been that kind of dark kind of worn, worn out, rainy, you know, kind of Mobius inspired future as, as much as there was in Blade Runner. I mean, that kind of crystallized it perfectly. So I feel like I'm just trying to find things that inspire me to, to discover new things that we haven't seen before, because I feel like we're in a bit of a feedback loop, um, in terms of pop culture. I think movies, TV, comics you know books even you know we're starting to see a lot of the same things over and over again because people are you know comfortable with what they're familiar with i'm trying to be as uncomfortable as i can i hear you um and i know you've directed crave and i know you won best director at the next wave competition for that um that was a few years ago though what uh kind of leaving this interview off what do you have anything are, are you are you still a documentarian at heart or are you pivoting to more narrative fiction well, I don't consider myself to have ever been a documentarian at heart. That okay. was just that, that was just something that that evolved along the way. I, I I've always wanted to do narrative features, and uh, you know, long before the documentaries, I was doing shorts, directing music video. I was even like dabbling in commercials. So I was sort of like I was trying to angle towards narrative, but then this curveball hit me that frankly I needed to survive because it was you know I was like broke, so it was, it was like a really good job to make some money, but also one that I. I think I had an aptitude for because, you know, being uh, a fan, but also someone who's interested in, in history and, and journalism, um, I thought, you know, that was a good way to go. So I, I have always been trying to steer back to uh, narrative and Cray was my, you know, it took a while, but it was my, my first feature and it was, you know, it was, it was a, in its own way a pain, but I also learned a lot. I can't wait to apply those lessons to the, to the next one. And um, I, yeah, I've got like, three or four projects I'm trying to get off the ground and, you know, it's tough, you know, in this environment, um, where, you know, people want a sure thing and they don't want to take risks on, on things. Um, it's, it's tough. And, um, but I'm going to keep trying, you know, and that's, that's why I have a group of people around me that I, I love and I trust and they support me and I support them and, and somehow we're going to try to get it done. And, um, I, I, you know, I can't wait to, uh, to get to the next movie. Cause I mean, when I, when I wrapped on Crave, I was already sad cause I, I knew I wasn't going to go back to set for a while. And, um, I, uh, I loved being on set and I loved, you know, being, you know, kind of like in the edit room and, and finding, you know, the right version of the movie, which by the way, if I were to go back and re-edit Crave, I'd completely do it differently than I did last time. So it's sort of like, I, I'm always, you know, learning and I, I want to keep learning. And, um, but yeah, to answer your question, I've got like, I've got, I've got three projects I'm super, super excited about. They're each, each one is at a different kind of um, budget level. And so I keep just trying to find the right combination of 
elements to make one of those work and, I, and I'm, it's still eluding me but we're trying like me and my my writing partner and and, and some of the other collaborators i work with you know we're all trying to find the way forward um short of doing it for free because like that's that's yeah. that's that's when you get into trouble um where you know i i it, it's yeah that's that's a, that's like a multi-hour conversation for another time but uh, it's just you know you have to you have to kind of like take these things seriously. I don't, I don't want to go out there and just goof around. I feel like I want to go out there and do something that means something. And that requires preparation. It requires support. It requires just a lot of different collaborators who are there with you, you know? Yeah, I, I understand. Well, that's all that I have. Uh, again, thank you so much for being a part of this and taking time out of your day. Um, you have someone I've been wanting to talk to for a few, I think I sent you a, a, an email on, AOL like five years ago. Um, and you were, we were going to do this over, uh, like a, a, a written interview. So this is fantastic to be able to speak to you in person. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, your interest and your patience. Do you love me? I love you. You trust me. I trust you. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.